morning. Welcome. Wish that you could all be here in person. Looks like that will be soon, we hope. They say that a picture is worth a thousand words. And for me, pictures, symbols, images, or even logos are very powerful things. Our faith is built on images, actually. In fact, the central teacher in our faith, the one that we follow, he is called the logo or the logos, the image, the very idea of God. After the Reformation, some groups decided that imagery in or art in the church was idolatrous. And so they, they made their meeting places very simple and they took away any iconography or pictures. Really, they just made it boring. But even removing them from their worship couldn't change the fact that symbols and imagery are just part of our faith. Right? Just simply read the parables or hold up a glass of wine or juice or break bread. All these things point to how dependent on images our faith is. Rituals, or what used to be called sacraments, we now call practices, are really images th themselves. They just point to the mystery of God's grace and love, right? Communion and baptism. They're both symbols that we use that are very powerful. And yet, they have become divisive in the church. And I wonder if it's because we've begun to place more importance on the image than on the mystery behind that. In communion, there's a huge difference in how churches celebrate communion. Some believe that it actually turns in to the body and the blood of Christ. While others believe that God is not present in the elements, but in the people that participate. Some use round wafers that taste like I don't, styrofoam. Others use loaves of bread. Some use wine. Some use Kool-Aid. But the mystery that we should be focusing on is not all of those things. It's that God is present in all of us, in all of it. And we don't really understand this, but we pretend we do. And so it causes us problems. Baptism has also become a huge thing for disagreement, right? An image that causes division. Immersion or sprinkling. Again, we focus on the image or the symbol instead of the mystery, and we end up divided. Personally, I prefer the idea of immersion. It's a great symbol, but I don't for a second believe that sprinkling is subpar, that there's some magical amount of water that washes away our sins. In fact, I've been blessed to be called to the hospital to baptize someone who is dying. And I didn't take a kiddie pool there to set up in his room so that there was enough water. I simply poured water over his head, celebrated the mystery with him before he passed away. And I know that God was pleased with it. In Mark 2, 27 to 28, Jesus says, the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people and not people to meet the needs, to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. The Sabbath itself is an image that can cause division, right? This image of God resting after creation, after his hard work of creating the planets and all of things. And here we have Jesus 
pointing to the mystery behind the image. And it seems to me that we could put other symbols into this statement by Jesus. Communion was given to meet the needs of the people. Baptism was given to meet the needs of the people. Confession was given to meet the needs of the people. And we've done this divisive thing with with perceived important images too, right? Symbols like stained glass, pews, pulpits, buildings, organs, crosses, etc., etc. And all these things have, can, and might point to mystery or be symbols of mystery, but they are not themselves mystery. They simply point to it. And sadly, there have been many fights over these things. My plan over the next little while throughout the summer is to point to images in our faith that lead us into mystery. And I have to warn you that there's likely going to be more questions than answers. However, it seems to me that questions are good for us. I've always loved that Jesus taught in the parables. Parables mean dark stories. They can be interpreted in many ways. And not only does Jesus teach in that way, but he rarely answers questions when confronted. He simply asks more questions. A friend of mine recently told me that if you can make any statement a question, it will be disarming. Instead of confronting a person, it opens them up. It's wisdom, and it's what Jesus did. Faith isn't certainty, and so questions should lead us deeper into mystery. Jesus rarely answered the questions of those who asked them of him. He simply pointed to the Father who is so above our understanding that we aren't allowed to speak his name in vain. But imagery and and these symbols do require our imagination. You know that imagination is God-given. It's a good thing. And it's not just for children, and it's not just for artists. It's given to us by God to help us with this imagery. And the image that I want to look at today is found right at the beginning. It's the tree of life. And this is an image that is used throughout Scripture beginning in the second chapter of Genesis, Genesis 2, 8, and 9. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So right at the very beginning, we have this image this symbol, the tree of life. And that's the main image that I want you to hold this morning, but with a secondary image of the tree of death, that being the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And these trees might represent a right relationship with God in the tree of life, or a broken relationship with God in the tree of knowledge, which is very interesting to me. Because these things actually point to what Jesus will tell us is the greatest commandment. Because right relationship with God leads us to loving him and his creation, including our neighbor. Whereas broken relationship or the knowledge of good and evil, which leads to judgment, leads us away from loving God and loving others. Immediately after the story of the two trees, we see the results of people having the knowledge of good and evil or judgment 
Cain kills his brother Abel. And I've wondered if these two trees symbolize aspects that only belong to God. Life and judgment. And God allowing death as the result of the eating of the tree of knowledge is actually a blessing. If you consider how poorly we judge each other, how we criticize and tear each other down, can you imagine if we could do that for eternity? Judgment of each other forever. Now ask any high school student and they will tell you that that is hell. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, they believe the tree of life to be an image of the cross. I love that, and I will be playing off that image as I talk today. For a, for a while, the tree seems to go underground. We don't really hear of it. And there's little mention. And it really does go underground. While the tree isn't heard of, its roots are in all of creation, in all things. And suddenly in, I, in Isaiah, we catch a glimpse. In Isaiah 53, 1 to 12, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. That's the part I want you to hear, but I'm going to read the rest. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. I'll keep going. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his trouble were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. And all of us like ship have, sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honor of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. The root of the tree of life was there all along. Underneath it all, it was present. The image of the garden being closed off to people speaks of the barriers we face when we seek life. It seems as though we struggle to live lives that actually matter, that are of eternal value. We tend to want an easy life, but we know that it is struggle that produces beauty and value. 
Jesus is presented here as a man of constant sorrow, and he is an example for us. He is the human one, and he is the root, as it says in Revelations 1, 8, and 9. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the one who, is always, who always was and who still is to come, the root and the offspring. In the beginning, the Son already existed. He created all things and holds all things together. He is the root and the offspring, the beginning and the end. Sometimes I worry that underneath it all, we think it's evil. That pain and sorrow and despair are the root of this existence. So the imagery of the tree of life having roots underneath it all, wow, to me that feels like a safe existence, one held in the Creator's hands. I wonder if we believed that at the bottom of all things was a God who was good, who offered life, and we acted on it if more people would want to know that God. I don't know if you've noticed this, but whenever God shows up in a messenger to speak to people, he says, do not be afraid. And yet our message is often, be afraid, be very afraid. Okay, we're going to skip over some references to the tree of life and go right to the end. I love these threads that kind of run right from the beginning of the, our scriptures right to the end. And in fact, I wonder if those threads are the ones that we should be pulling on. And the reason that I chose the tree of life this week is because it's the first thread that we can, we can do, we can pull on and see where it ends. Revelations 22, 1 to, 1 to 2. When the angel, then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. And the leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. Again, beautiful imagery. And it's reconciling that the tree that was used to give life, the tree that was used to give life had been removed. We were not given access to it. And that was for good reason. And now here in the final chapter of our sacred writings, we see that the tree of life produces an ongoing crop of fruit. And even its leaves heal the knowledge of good and evil. The judgment between nations will be healed. Peace between Israel and Palestine. Peace between indigenous peoples and settlers. Again, in Revelations 22, the tree of life is spoken about 14 to 16. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs, sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Just in case you thought I was overreaching earlier talking about the root and the tree of life, here we see the tree of life and the root together. In every good story, there's a beginning, a climax, and an end. And so we've already kind of looked at the beginning and the end, but let's now look to the climax. We'll, talk, we'll look at 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. For to you, for to this you were called, 
because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. When I read this, I can't help but think of the story in Numbers, uh, Numbers 21, when the Israelites are hungry in the wilderness, and they start complaining and start saying, this manna you gave us tastes terrible. Complain to God. And some snakes come along and start biting people, poisoning them, killing many died. And Moses prays to God, and he's told to make a bronze snake and to lift it up into the air. And any who are bitten and look at the snake will be healed. A poisonous snake that bit them is raised up on a pole for all to see. Maybe when people looked at it, they realized and recognized their own toxic behavior, their complaining. And as Jesus is raised up, carrying the weight of all our sin, the ugliness of scapegoating is raised for all to see. The poison of our judgment is put on display. Our malice and hatred shone in a torch's death. Look upon the one they pierced, and you will be healed. As I thought about this image this week, I could not help but have this song running through my head. I want, if you got a few minutes later today, I'd love for you to listen to it. I'm going to read you the words, but you need to hear it. It's sang by Billy Holiday. It's called Strange Fruit. And it matches the ugliness of the cross. Here's the, here's the words. Southern trees bear a strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastoral scene of the gallant south, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth. Scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh, then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the sun to rot, for the tree to drop. Here is a strange and bitter crop. The fruit of the cross is gruesome. Spilled blood and broken body. And yet the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Jesus hanging on the tree reminds us that just because it looks like evil or power wins does not make it true. Just because we think evil is at the root of it does not make it true. In fact, Jesus says multiple times the first will be last and the last will be first. The kingdom is upside down. And while the image of the crucifixion is ugly, gazing upon it, remembering it, looking at the one who was placed upon it, brings us life and produces good fruit. John 15, 5 says, Yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, 19 says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. 
As the scripture says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. The message of the tree is indeed upside down. It's foolishness to most people. Because the image of death becomes the image of the tree of life. The tree that looked attractive to Adam and Eve brought death when they ate of it. And the tree that is repulsive and ugly or grotesque brings us life. The tree of life that we were no longer, no longer able to eat of, Jesus offers and says, take and eat. I am the life. What beautiful imagery God plays with, right? It was at the tree of death that Adam and Eve were tempted, where corruption made its way into creation. And it is at a tree that looks like death that death is defeated. And we begin to see the tree of life in full bloom. Let me end with these words from an old, old hymn called Faithful Cross Above All Other. Faithful Cross Above All Other, one and only noble tree, none in foliage, none in blossom, none in fruit thy peer may be. Sweetest wood and sweetest iron, sweetest weight is hung on thee. Bend thy boughs, O tree of glory, thy relaxing sinew bend. For a why the ancient rigor that thy birth bestowed suspend, and the king of heavenly beauty gently on thy arms extend. May the God of peace equip you with all that you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen.